Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here with Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey! So, today we are talking to Ijoma Alu, author of the New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race, which recently once again reached a bestseller list this year after making the list when it first came out in 2018. Alu is a 2017 and 2018 Route 100 honoree and winner of the 2018 Feminist Humanist Award by the American Humanist Society. Her writing has been featured in numerous outlets, including The Washington Post, NBC News, Elle Magazine, Time Magazine, and The Guardian. You know, I I always want to talk about race, but I really, really love this book. You know, I think for those of us who have been doing this work for years in terms of writing about race on a daily basis, it actually provides this incredible opportunity to kind of like zoom out to the macro of what's going on here. And she does such a great job of pulling together how all of the components of race and racism, you know, intertwine and intersect and impact our daily lives, no matter what race you are, right? Exactly, exactly. And I feel like I was raised talking about race. I don't know how not to talk about race. Yeah, right. I mean, how do you? How as, do you not? <laughs> yeah. You know, as a Black woman, it is so much in the forefront of your life. Um, like a lot of Black women, I can't separate, you know, my Blackness from my femaleness. But I do see myself often as a Black person first, because that is what everyone else seems to see. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we wear our, our blackness and in our case is also our womanhood on our sleeves. <laughs> you know, those are the costumes <laughs> that we're walking through life with as black femmes. And I think that, uh, again, when we talk about intersectionality, we're usually talking about black women. But I think what Ijoma does here is talk about the intersectionalities that exist throughout life. So I think we should jump right into this interview. How about you? All right, let's do it. <laughs> Joma, welcome to It's Lit. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm not sure if we've touched base since you were a 2018 Route 100 honoree. That was absolutely the blackest party I was at all year. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) We're very proud of those parties. I'm so sad that we won't be able to have an in-person Route 100 experience thanks to COVID. It's still going to be blackity black, black, black. (laughs) Yes. Most definitely, most definitely. (laughs) So to break the ice a bit, since It's Lit is a podcast about Black books and writers, we typically like to kick things off by asking all our authors to name at least one book that they consider life-changing, life-affirming, like it blew your mind. What was that book or books for you? 
Oh man, you know, I don't know, this may sound cliche, but I guess it is for a reason. But I was probably 12 when I first read The Color Purple. And that book, like as a young queer black woman also trying to figure out how to heal from abuse and the world, I, I don't know if I ever have before or since felt more seen in the pages of a book than that one. And just recognizing that you could do that and that a book didn't have to be crisp and clear, that it could be messy the way people are messy, knowing that language didn't have to follow these, you know, really Eurocentric white rules was just beautiful. No, it's an, it's an amazing book. I read it when I was, uh, I think, in junior high or high school, so close to the same age. And it was same really here. affirming yeah. for me as well. How about you, Maisha? Yeah, I don't think that's cliched at all. That remains one of my favorite books. I think it's a classic for a reason. We're so glad you're joining us today, Ijima, especially considering this is t- over two years since the publication of your bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race, which we called Fascinating, Real, and Necessary at the Root back in 2018. And we couldn't help but notice that quote on the cover of the paperback edition. So shout out to your publisher, Seal Press. <laughs> But remarkably, this book became a bestseller again this summer in the aftermath of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery and the resulting protests. Did you find it surprising that so many people suddenly gravitated back to So You Want to Talk About Race? Yeah, I I think surprising is a word for it. Um, It was actually really gutting at first, you know? You, You have this book... You hope people will read it. You hope they'll do the work with it. A couple years passes and you're like, okay, you know, it'll still, some people will still get it over the years, but it's done what it can do. And to realize that there was all this potential for engaging in general with the topic of race and racism in America, that it took brutal murders for people to pick it up again was tough. And then also, you know, you're like, why this book? <laughs> you know, why aren't we why aren't we all picking up the how to burn down the system book? You know, like why can't we do that right now? <laughs> Can we talk later? <laughs> no, I totally get it. So speaking of these protests, we keep hearing that, you know, from many people that this time feels different. Have you noticed a change in the response to your book the second time around? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, In June and the end of May, I sold more copies of my book, like in a 30-day period, than I had sold in two and a half years. Wow. And now I would say we're probably at over two times as many copies. So, yeah, I mean, that part where people were like, I need to understand. But also... I absolutely have seen a difference in what people are asking when they're engaging with the book, because it's a lot less of how do I talk to my family, even how do I talk to my boss? It's what can we glean from these pages to like turn our entire corporations around to discuss as a city, you know, how to change these harmful systems. And so that that is different because before it was absolutely, you know, people would email me and say, we would like an art author talk. Can you talk about what it's like to write this book? And now it's like, hey, um, all of our black employees are saying we have to start doing better. 
we're trying to use your book to do that. Can you talk to us about what we can do? So I am seeing a lot more focus, not enough, but still a lot more on the work that needs to be done and less about like the experience of educating yourself. You know, I, I love that you talk about the educating yourself because this is, you know, this subject material. First of all, I'm going to borrow a phrase from my uh, Southern grandparents and just say like, you are doing the Lord's work with this <laughs> book because you are basically leading people by the hand through these really uncomfortable conversations and, you know, conversations that evoke a really strong emotional response. You know, one of the things that we're still grappling with is so many people can't even stand being called white, <laughs> let alone racist or reminded to check their privilege. So do you feel like, do you honestly feel, you know, as you're getting these responses that people are ready to have an honest conversation about race now? And would you, what would you say are the biggest obstacles in them doing so? You know, I think there's a lot of risk and fear all around. And I don't know if ready is ever a place you can be. Like, I think we start to prepare. Mm -hmm. I think it's a skill, right? Um, just like, you know, I am an able-bodied cisgender Black woman, right? And when people want to talk to me about ableism or transmisogyny, uh, I'm not always ready to hear where I'm participating, you know, in that system, but it's a process, right? Like I'm getting better at hearing it. I'm getting better at moving through it. And I would say that people do have a little more bandwidth right now, especially white people, to practice that. I would say that on the flip side, this is an incredibly difficult time for Black people to be talking about race right now. You know, like white people are like, I'm eager, I'm ready. And Black people are like, this is the most traumatic year of my entire life. Um, can, right. I, can I have a nap? Can I have a spa day? Can I have something other than this right now? And so that's kind of the hard part is there's all this eagerness at a time when Black people are especially raw and, you know, rightfully less patient, you know, and I think that honestly, we, we could all serve to be less patient, Black people in these discussions, because we have to practice our self-care, you know, and listen to when our, our bodies and our brains are telling us that we've had enough. But yeah, I, I would say that I am absolutely seeing people come to this a little more open-mindedly, especially white people and white passing people, people with more racial privilege are coming to this more like okay, I'm willing to maybe hear that I've been doing something wrong where they weren't before because people are desperate to, I think people are desperate to figure out how they could have missed this. You know, they're like, how did I not get that it was this bad? And they are finally opening up to the idea that it wasn't hidden from them, you know, that there's something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that they've been doing something <laughs> to create an environment where they don't have to hear it, you know, and that's that I think a big difference. Yeah, like to piggyback on that, you know, we're having like this really surreal experience right now of watching tons of white people and as you say, white white passing people wake up to racism in real time, which you acknowledge in this book. For those of us who've been talking and writing about race and racism for years, you know, there's a little frustration there and distrust and even anger at the mainstream sudden willingness to quote-unquote get it. We've watched so many high-profile strong statements about racism in recent months, and has it stirred up similarly strong feelings for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say I was so angry at first. Also, too, because, you know, I'm a Black woman, and I was hurting. You know, I think we were all hurting, right? I was so 
hurt and traumatized. And I had already been hurting watching, you know, I've lost peers to this coronavirus and seeing how that was devastating our community. And then also, you know, knowing that like, of course, police brutality isn't going to take a break at this time. It's still going to seek us out. I was hurting at first and then be like, now, right now, seriously, this, you want to you come to me right now? But I was so bitter. I was really, really angry at first. I mean, to the point literally where <laughs> my agent, I love her so much, um, you know, <laughs> had to call my whole publishing team. And she had to email and say, please do not call Ijoma with congratulations about where this book is right now. Because mm. no one, I don't know any Black person who wants their book to hit the top of the bestseller list because more black people were murdered, you know, like that's not, you want to know that you matter. You know, we say black lives matter. You want to know that black lives matter when we aren't being killed, you know, that we matter all the time. So yeah, I was really stuck in a place for a long time. That was tough. You know, what brought me out of it honestly was looking at young people. I was so worried for young people out there in the streets protesting, you know, especially so many young black people who risking their health on so many levels, risking police brutality, risking, you know, this virus to get out there and make change. And they thought they could, you know? And then when Angela Davis said that she felt lucky that she lived long enough to see this, I was like, okay, look, if Angela Davis can move out of this moment and honor, you know, what young people are doing right now, like, who am I? You know, who am I to be sitting here all bitter in the corner? You know, I've got I've to join this, you know, this time. Slightly, but not much, because, you know, I mean, Angela Davis is one of the great leaders, the great thinkers, and I think even one of the great feminist icons of our lifetimes. And we are so lucky to be able to witness her. But, you know, one of my focuses at The Root is women's issues. And while revisiting this book, one of the phrases you say early on that really struck me was, I told myself that it would all be worth it one day, that being a successful Black woman was revolution enough. And I, it really resonated with me because I think like that's how so many of us are moving through the world, right? You know, I mean, how we're seeing a successful Black woman vie for the second highest seat in the country right now. And you challenge that myth, you know, in terms of what that should look like. But we know that Black women are often tasked with fixing so many of America's problems. And you've become a vital voice in these discussions about race and racial politics do you feel that burden as like specifically as a black woman, this is kind of like cleanup burden that we sometimes get? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I think, you know, that our whole lives have been kind of defined by what we can do for community, for family. You know, if we're not caring for people often as black women, we feel like we're not doing anything. I actually just had, I forced myself to take a couple of days away. You know, we're in a pandemic, right? I, I realized I hadn't spent a single night away from my family in over six months. And I needed a couple of days. And I, I had an, a full scale anxiety attack because I was like, I need to be doing something. I need to be looking online. I need to be calling. I need to make sure everyone's okay. And I was like, no, you know what? Actually, I need to take care of myself. I really do because I am I am part of that Black lives that I'm fighting for. You know, I am one of those lives. And I think it's important to recognize that 
what we have to do to survive is not our nature, right? It is not our nature to take care of everyone. And a lot of times we allow people to put that label on us, that it is our nature to sacrifice ourselves. No, that's that's survival, but we are still worthy of care. And when I do this work and I forget that, uh, my work suffers, you know, and I suffer, my family suffers, if I forget that, you know, I am just as worthy of love and care as I'm pouring into everyone else. And I think that regardless of what you're doing, you know, I think the work I do is, is more high profile. But I wouldn't trade for a second, like the Black women I know working in cubicles who have to have these smaller versions of these conversations 20 times a day while risking their salary, you know, risking their ability to put food on the table. We are all doing so much, you know, that we shouldn't have to do. And I really hope that we can find a way collectively to prioritize our own care and communal care of Black women in general. No, I agree. Like, it's so important for Black women to take the time to restore and reinvigorate themselves. I think far too often we buy into this notion that we're just supposed to give, 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 you know, and not that somehow taking care of ourselves is selfish, but it's not. Like, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. Like, you won't be able to be your best optimal self to your society, to your community, to your family, if you aren't taking care of the primary person. So I'm glad that you brought that up. One of the things that struck me and Maisha about your book is how current it is. And even in this discussion around the election of Donald Trump, you asked in the book, quote, what was missing? from the left's message that left so many people unenthusiastic about supporting a Democratic candidate, end quote. We're once again, you know, at this juncture and we seem to be facing some of the same disillusionment and apathy, uh, despite the stakes being unfathomably higher. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's a protest movement going. Lots of people are out of work. People are facing losing their homes, What do you think the left is missing? You know, I would say that the left is missing the real fundamental truth, which is that if you care for the needs of the most disenfranchised people in our society, you will care for everyone. You know, that if you really do appeal to what we really need and want, if you decide we are worth the risk and the effort, that it will be rewarded. And instead, people are willing to kind of coast on the really difficult spot we are in. I don't think that the left understands psychologically, because if you are a white liberal, this has not happened to you. What it means to know that, yes, absolutely voting Republican, voting for openly you know, racist vitriol is putting your life in danger. And knowing that you have to sacrifice a bit of your humanity to keep that from happening, that you have to settle for so much less than real representation in order to keep that from happening time and time and time again, what that does to you and what it does to your idea of citizenship, you know, and I used to love politics. I have a degree in political science. And being asked time and time again to wait, to say, you know, we'll get around to you. We'll get around to these pressing issues. We know you're still dying. We know you'll keep dying under a Democrat president. But this is more important. Help us out. And knowing that there's no way that any candidate 
on the left would run without hitting all of mainstream white liberal America's needs, right? Without at least putting lip service to it. And here we are time and time again told to just show up. And that being said, I will still Mm -hmm. show up because I know what the alternative is, right? I know that I can't put protests on the backs of my children, you know, and, and even more vulnerable black people by saying, well, I'm not going to show up, but I understand. I wish I could. I wish we had a robust enough political system where I could say, screw all y'all, you know, <laughs> like I wish I could. I wish we didn't have a two party system because I know that I'm sacrificing a bit of my humanity when I make these choices. And that really sucks. You know, you, you talk about the two-party system, and I, I would also add that we are now, you know, more polarized than we have been, or at least I would say on the surface, you know, publicly more polarized than we've been in decades. And, you know, one of the things I love so much about your work is that you urge us to hold space for multiple truths, you know, whether we're examining our privilege or the myth of American exceptionalism or affirmative action or intersectionality. Shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw. And we know that there's people who are never going to get it, who don't want to get it. But aside from reading this book, is there any bit of advice that you would give in terms of making space for more than your own reality? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that I teach in writing classes, but I also think it's just a really great practice. A lot of times, especially I think in the internet age, it is so easy to know all the right words to say, to fit into whatever group you're in, right? And you spend all day kind of preaching what you know your friends are going to agree with, feeling good about it, and then getting frustrated with people who aren't on board with you. And it's really easy to build up this hubris that you've always been right, that you've always got in it. And then therefore there is something really wrong with the people who don't. And what that does is it creates a situation where even if people are realizing they're wrong, they are afraid to say it because it means maybe there's something more wrong with them than they thought that they couldn't get it while you got it. And I am not saying this to like, if you run across like an open racist who's like, you know, like leave them, (laughs) leave them, let them live their lives far away from you, you know, and do what you got to do. No sense to hold space for them, right? They they have an entire political Mm -hmm. party that will hold space for them. But where we oftentimes are trying to get people to talk about like policing, you know, and we may come across other black people who are like, no, 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 no. I love police. And I'm like, look, burn it down burn it down (laughs) and I have to remember that like I wasn't always in that spot right even looking at my book I would update it and come across a lot more pro-abolition you know than I did and recognizing like I wasn't always in that space so what the exercise I always like to say is like the last argument you got on social media with someone that was maybe of a somewhat similar political persuasion and you were so frustrated with them because they weren't getting it you know pause and think when were you not getting it like where was that space where you learned because you didn't like come out of the womb being like, you know, let me talk to you about intersectional feminism and why, you know, like you didn't know any of this, right? You didn't know why these things were important and you got to this space and something got you there. And go back to that space before you knew and spend a little time there and figure out who you were and why this appealed to you. And that will give you 
an idea of what you need to do to have conversations with people who aren't there yet and bring them forward and talk with humility about your steps and your process. And remember that you were a person who deserved care at that time too. And you also deserved accountability, right? You needed to be held accountable for maybe if you were perpetuating harm, but you also know like that was you. And doing that like exercise, like I teach that in writing because I find that oftentimes on the internet, you can do a lot of persuasive essays where you're not persuading anyone because you're just like, what's wrong with you, fool? You should have known this, right? And instead you need to be like, wait, am I trying to win someone over? Okay, I need to be where they're at and pull them forward. But it's the same in our relationships, right? And it's the same in our dialogues that we have to remember that and know that there is someone trying to do that for us as well where we are failing and we aren't aware yet that we are where we're supposed to be. And so I think keeping that in mind, being aware of your journey, being upfront and open and honest about your journey is probably one of the easiest ways to keep holding space for people and moving people forward with you. That's an incredible answer. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I am inspired. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, if I'm not mistaken, so you want to talk about race was your first book? Yes. Amazing. And so your second is due out in December and is titled, and I love this title, by the way, (laughs) Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Now, that title alone says plenty. (laughs) And as the root being a site whose staff is full of Black women, um, we've certainly made plenty of jokes about the confidence of mediocre white men. But what compelled you to write this book now? And what can you tell us about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a slightly different tone from the last book. But if you <laughs> it's me still, <laughs> um, you know, what what compelled me, honestly, and I, and I write about this in the book itself was I was at a writer's retreat and realizing that in this writing retreat for women and femmes that we spent like half of our time, two thirds of our time talking about shitty dudes and I was like oh this sucks you know like why 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 are they invading even this space and we were all trying to figure it out and we're like is it the election is it you know and I was like no 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 because this is this is my whole life and I had had a lot of wine (laughs) and I was thinking like oh you know there's a whole history here. And I wanted to blurt out all the reasons why, but of course, people don't come to writer's retreats to be lectured at by a half-drunk Black woman about you know the history of white male supremacy in America. So I took a piece of paper and I didn't have pockets and I wrote down mediocre, the story of white male America. That's what I wrote first. <laughs> and then I put the piece of paper in my bra because I didn't have a pocket and I fell asleep. And I woke up in the morning and I was like, what is stabbing my boob right now? And I pulled this piece of paper out and I looked at it. And I was like, oh, and then I didn't have reception where I was. So I walked like half a mile uh, down the road and just <laughs> blearily like texted this to my agent and then went back. <laughs> and she was like, great, sounds great. And then I was like, oh, I need to actually make this a book. Um, and it was interesting because when I started working on this book, I didn't, I don't know why I thought this would be a breeze. I thought it would be fun. I was like, this will be exciting. No, it's not. It was the worst. Like I was, I was neck deep in horrible, you know, like equally mediocre and violent white men for two years while also being like harassed and trolled in real life and also having to like exist as a black woman. 
But then, you know, I, I just reread it for the final time. And there were times I was like, huh, okay, all right, yeah. Hey, I could see. I see it. I like this. This is good. It wasn't, you know, just because I didn't enjoy a lot of the process doesn't mean it's not a good book. Like, I would read this. Uh, so I'm actually now, like, kind of getting excited. I've had a little distance from it where I'm like, hey, this might do something. Like, this might be a conversation. What I, you know, my goal for it was really to get people to recognize that this is a pattern. This is not just there's a shitty dude here and a shitty dude there, but this is what we are valuing as a society, what we are rewarding as a society. And and we're not going to make change just with votes. We're not going to make change just by saying that's bad. We're going to make change by by rebuilding our systems and our collective ideals to say that, you know, this hyper-individualistic idea of power that's centered on how you can control other people no longer flies. And, you know, we're going to build something different and recognizing that we all kind of participate in that system and have. And it has cost all of us, regardless of race or gender, for hundreds of years, it's been just disastrous. And it's taking us to the edge of disaster. Like, we're literally living the final form of white male mediocrity right now, you know, where it's like a country is so, so attached to just, you know, being a collection of, like, fake cowboys that we're willing to give ourselves diseases and die than, you know, seem collectively responsible, you know? And it's just... I didn't experience, you know, I didn't expect that. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I didn't expect that while I was writing the book at all. You didn't all. expect it to turn into mediocre white men in game? Exactly. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. You know, I always say this all the time whenever I've experienced any self-doubt professionally. I say, Lord, grant me the strength of a mediocre white man. Like, I mm-hmm. want the confidence <laughs> of that mediocre white man because, oh, my God. You know, I tell that to writers all the time because like writers, especially writers of color and especially women writers of color, disabled writers are constantly like, oh, is this good enough? Like I've, I've when I'm work, you know, working as an editor with writers, I've never seen people who want it to be perfect. And I'm like, look, here's the thing. Even if you are the worst writer in the world, you still deserve to be out there because there are so many white dudes who never even think to ask, am I a good writer before they're out there winning Pulitzers? So just put it out there because you need to be out there. We need to know, we need to know that women can be shitty writers too. We need to know that black people can be shitty writers too and that we still have things (laughs) that need to be said and heard because right now we are inundated with the mediocrity of white men and they get to get by. Like they, they know one fundamental truth, which is that, They think they all deserve, no matter what they put out there, to get by. Not only that, they think they deserve to be kings. We can at least recognize Mm -hmm. we deserve to be heard. And we we deserve to exist and have safety, you know? And And I just want people to remember that. Like, I'm constantly saying, you know, go out there and, like, absolutely still be collectively responsible. But recognize, even if you are not the best at the thing you're doing, that that has never stopped a white man in his life um, from going out there and acting like he's the absolute best. Not once. Not Mm -hmm. once. That was an excellent way to end this interview. Ijima, it was so wonderful to have you on It's Lit and have this conversation with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It was very affirming. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was great.
The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. And why would you want to keep something this good to yourself anyway? <laughs> if you have any feedback or thoughts, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, on Twitter, and Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you into these days? You know, I have been uh, working my way through (laughs) Isabel Wilkerson's cast, as I said on the podcast. I started it and I haven't quite finished because it's it's a lot of book, but it's incredible. But I got to say, I I think after this, I'm going to start delving back into my Alice Walker. You know, I have all mm. of Alice Walker's books. Fun fact, I actually chose my alma mater, which was Sarah Lawrence College, in part because Alice Walker had attended. She didn't stay there the whole time, but she did attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a huge Alice Walker fan, and I think Ijoma just got me to dig back into my collection of Alice Walker books. How about you? Oh, well, you know, I am in the middle of conducting lots of research for a book I am writing. Hey, now. Um, And so I am currently reading Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge, written by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. And it's an excellent, riveting book about a slice of history most people don't know about. Uh, Because the reality is most runaway slaves did not write or talk about their experiences because a lot in a lot of cases they just want to pretend like that shit never happened. I mean, and can I, you blame I them? Blame them. <laughs> don't blame them. I wouldn't want to remember slavery either if I got out of it. It's like, well, that happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again soon. In the meantime, keep it lit. <laughs>